Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that you've given us your word that will guide and lead us and that, Lord, um, has what we need for our lives. As we are coming to the end of this study in Acts, Lord, we pray that it is your word that has changed us and transformed us as your word promises to do. And we pray that we are living with greater faith and that, Lord, um, our lives are becoming a testament of sorts to you. We ask for your Holy Spirit now to speak into our hearts, into our very lives, to transform us, Lord. To your glory, Jesus, we ask this. And I pray that you, Lord, make it larger as I get smaller in the message today. I ask this in your precious name. Amen. We're in the final section of Acts, down to the last couple of chapters. And as I said a few weeks back, in this final section, a major theme is the sovereignty of God. And one of the things that we see time and time again throughout this section, from the time that Paul has finished his third missionary journey, until now, Paul is faithfully trusting the Lord. Most of us would have been frustrated and given up by now, but not Paul. And one of the things that I've thought about in this is, it seems to me that this is not a have to for Paul. This is a want to. I often, especially when I'm wrestling with things and find myself wrestling with things, I start to ask myself the question, how many have-tos do I have on my plate in my life? And how many want-tos did I have on my plate in my life? And usually when I start to run out of energy and I'm feeling burnt, honestly, I got too many have-tos and none of the want-tos. And what bothers me a lot of times in that is that my relationship with God has somehow gone from a want to to a have to, and I don't know how it got there. Now, the great thing that I found about God is that He can reestablish us from that have to to a want to place. And I think in some regard, as we look at Acts chapter 27, we can understand how God does that. Because what we're going to see is the faithfulness of God. And I believe it is out of that faithfulness of God that oftentimes we are inspired and we are moved to move from that have to to that want to place again. As I...
go through chapter 27 with you, I want to use another piece of Scripture to outline it. And the Scripture I want to use is from the Proverbs. It's Proverbs 16.9, and this is what it says. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That word establishes is translated as determines in NIV. And I think that this provides a powerful picture and framework for how those of us who believe in the Lord live our lives, often not fully in touch with God, but God nevertheless is fully in touch with us. Did you hear that? Often, we who love God find ourselves going about our life not fully in touch with Him. But He is nevertheless fully in touch with us, His people. The big idea today is this, that God's faithfulness inspires us to be faithful in trusting Him. You might question then, does that mean that my faithfulness to God is dependent upon His faithfulness to me? My answer to that would be yes. Yes. I don't know anybody who is totally faithful. Do you? You got it down? You never question God? You're always trusting Him? You got it right? Anybody want to raise their hands? Good. I don't have to call anybody a liar. We all struggle with that. But God is faithful. Scripture says He's faithful even when we are faithless. And it's His faithfulness, His willingness to show up and be the God that He is and fulfill the promises that He makes and be true to Himself that inspires our faithfulness toward Him. Open up your Bibles now to Acts 27, if you will. And while you are, I want to provide a little background so we remember where we are. Now previously, Paul has been held unjustly at Caesarea for two years. And when the governorship, the Roman governorship, changes hands from Felix to Festus, we learn that Festus wanted to seek the goodwill of the Jews and their support. So he thought he'd do them a favor. And the favor that he offers up to them to try to win their favor and support is that he's going to offer up Paul to them. And what he does is he brings Paul and the Jews before him, and he says to Paul, would you like to go to Jerusalem and settle this matter? It's really not so much a question because he is going to mandate it. But that is when Paul says, as a citizen of Rome, I am going to employ my right to have my case heard before the emperor. 
and with his hands tied, Festus must send him to Caesar. And Paul will go to Rome as God promised from the first prayers prayed over Paul after he met the resurrected and ascended Jesus. The first movement of chapter 26 is man plans his way. These are the first 13 verses. And what we learn in these verses is that Paul is uh, remanded, not reprimanded, remanded, into the custody of a centurion named Julius. He is from the regiment that is from Syria. And what we discover is that there are other prisoners going on this trip. And it doesn't tell us much about those prisoners, but scholars say that they were likely condemned men who were part of the quota sent to Rome as human victims for their amusement. It is callous and cruel. But if you remember not too long ago in our history in the United States, when they hung someone, they did it publicly and crowds came out to see the spectacle. So all these prisoners are heading off to Rome. Paul is among them. Now travel in the ancient world wasn't the same way it is today. You didn't go to a travel agent, call them up, and uh, just say, hey, can you uh, set me up an itinerary so I can get from Caesarea over to Rome? Yeah, I got a direct flight for you. That doesn't happen. And in fact, they didn't know who might be at the next port. And the way they traveled was they moved in the direction they needed to go. And they kept moving with people who were going in the direction they needed to go. So we're going to see that they are going to change ships and they are going to move in some different directions. But they will eventually head toward Rome as a result. The detail in Acts 27 is remarkable. And you might kind of say, ah, you know, it's so much detail. Give me something else. But the detail is important. Because the detail, at some level, proves to us that this is an accurate accounting. This is history. There are people who want to say the Bible has no historical value. That's not true. We believe that the Bible does have historical value. And we believe that we should interpret the Bible within the context of a genre. There are historical books in the Bible that we take as historical genre, Acts is one of them. So one of the things that um, you're going to notice as you read through these first eight verses, and I'm going to invite you to do that on your own later on, you're going to notice the word we. We. Dr. Luke is writing the account. And the we is Dr. Luke and Paul. Dr. Luke has been accompanying Paul along his journey. 
and been one of his ministry partners. And he is accompanying him now on board this ship to Rome. Seven times in the first eight verses, the pronoun we is used. In the mid-19th century, a man by the name of Thomas Walker, who was a retired professional soldier, and he was an avid yachtsman, he decided that he would take on an investigation of this chapter to see if it was really true. And he spent two years in the Mediterranean area, and there he studied weather patterns, he studied navigation maps, he studied uh, seamanship books, both ancient and modern. And what he concluded was, whoever wrote chapter 27 was an eyewitness. But he said no sailor would have ever written it the way he did. That This man who wrote it was a landlubber. I love that. If we can put the map up, I want to show you the journey. Now, you're going to see green arrows. And those green arrows are where they stopped. And we're going to talk about that. You're going to see some red arrows. And those red arrows are where the winds are blowing from. And then you're going to see the journey line. And that's going to tell you where they traveled from. And as you can see, they made several stops in this journey. Also, I want you to note that the wind lines, the length of them, kind of represent the strength of the wind to us. So hopefully you can translate all of that. Well, Julius, Paul, the other prisoners leave Caesarea and they go to Sidon in Syria. It is here that the account tells us Julius allows Paul to leave the ship, even though he's a prisoner. And he doesn't require someone to be with him. And Paul is ministered to by friends overnight. And then they board the ship again, and they head out. And as they often do, especially in the ancient world, they traveled close to the shoreline. They didn't just make a beeline for Rome. It would be very unsafe. If they were closer to the shoreline, if something happens, they may have a better chance of surviving. So they head up around Cyprus, and they go to Myra. When they get to the port of Myra, they fortunately find a ship that is bound for Italy. Good news. So they get on board. But as they begin to travel from Myra, the winds begin to shift and come from the east. And now it's very difficult for them to make headway. Do we have any sailors here? Anybody a sailor? Ah, we got a couple of sailors. I'm not. But I have been on sailboats before. And, you know, when you're sailing against the wind, you have to tack to go forward. Am I correct? I mean, just, no. You could just go straight. You don't have to tack back and forth. What if you got a square sail? Yeah. Yeah, but I'm talking about that. They're sailing into the wind. Okay? So, they have to tack back and forth like this. And they had square sails, which were not as friendly. So, their progress was very slow. 
And they weren't able to make good time. And they eventually decide to stop at Snidus because they have lost so much time that the window for good weather traveling in the Mediterranean is closing very quickly. And they have to make some decisions about it. There in Snidus, they decide, they decide to move forward again. But when they leave Snidus, they find that the winds get stronger, more difficult. They continue to tack back and forth, and it's very slow. And they have to come to the lee side of the island of Crete. And as they do, they put into the port of Fair Havens. This was a port that was exposed to the east, so it wasn't a port that they could spend the winter in. And when they get there, they have some decisions to make. There's a slim chance but they may well be able to make it to Rome. As we read verses 9 through 13 together, you're going to hear the account speak about the fast. The fast is a reference to the Day of Atonement. And scholars tell us that it is likely the Day of Atonement is actually occurring in October this year. And as a result... That window of time has most likely disappeared. So let's read verses 9 through 13. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they obtained the purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. What we have here is a picture of human beings making their plans apart from the insight of the Lord. It is true that the centurion and the pilot and the owner of the ship likely did not know the Lord. It doesn't tell us that they were believers, so we can assume that. But we also know that not only unbelieving folk get busy making plans apart from the Lord, believing folk do as well. These men, they do not rely on the sovereignty of God. They do not believe in the sovereignty of God. They may believe in determinism. They may believe in something else. They may believe in false gods. But unlike Christian believers who trust the Word of God, unlike God's people who trust the Word of God. They do not believe in the sovereignty of God. Still, Paul is among them, and he is a believer, and he trusts that God's purposes will not be thwarted. And as we shall see, that will be good news for them. 
Now the truth is, lots of us find ourselves in a place where we are not in touch with God as events are occurring. We may be in prayer. We may go to Scripture to try to find out the answers. But while things happen rapidly and move forward quickly, and we're trying to figure out exactly what to do, we may not be able to discern any leading from God at that moment. I remember a time when I was making a decision for college. And my father said to me, he said, well, I'm down to two schools, Dad. Both of them have offered me this scholarship. I'm not sure what to do. And instead of saying to me, well, talk to me about it, my dad said, go up to your room and make a decision. Now, Dad wanted me to be independent and learn about trusting my own decision-making ability. So I'm sure that's where that was coming for, from him. But I remember going up there and praying and thinking, oh God, you got to help me. I really got to know where to go. I don't want to make a bad decision. This could change the rest of my life. It could. It did. I chose to go to Illinois State. God didn't speak. I didn't find it anywhere in the Bible. I didn't hear an audible voice. You know, I looked the concordance for Illinois State, but it wasn't there. And two years later, I left Illinois State and went to the other school. Because that's where I felt I really needed to be. We find ourselves sometimes in positions where we don't have a lot of time, and we're praying and we're asking God to guide us. Well, that's okay. It's good that we have the Word of God and it's good that we go to God in prayer. And it's good that we pray for clarity. But sometimes we don't get it. Now, Marcia and I have a prayer that we pray together whenever we're really not sure. And I, I just I'll share it with you because it might help you. She will ask God to just be really clear. Right? And I will ask God, God, I'm not a subtle man. Hit me in the head with a two-by-four so I can't miss it. I'm not sure whether he's answering hers or mine, but usually, boy, it comes crystal clear. And I have a bump on my head. But a good one. The truth is, when we find ourselves in situations like that, and we don't get an answer right away, we have two choices. One is, we can wait upon the Lord until we do get an answer. The second is, we can make our plans, trust God, and forge ahead. Now I will tell you, if I've already been praying about something, I will often make my plans and forge ahead. If not, I will wait upon the Lord. Sometimes way too short. I'm a man prone to action. If you are a person who's prone to wait upon the Lord, then let me tell you, that is good. That is really good. But if you are not listening, 
And if you are not responding, that's bad. If you're prone to action, like me, let me tell you, that's good. I really do believe that. That's good. Sometimes we have to act without a lot of time. The thing that we have to do when we do act is to remain sensitive to the Lord's leading and guiding in spirit. The problem that can be bad is that if you're unwilling to wait upon God because you want to act out of your willfulness instead of submission to the Lord, that's bad. Now, whether you are prone to wait upon the Lord or whether you are prone to action, let me tell you the one thing God wants from you, okay? Because it doesn't matter the other. This is what God wants from you. He wants you to trust him above all else and to continue to trust him above all else. Some of you may be at a decision-making moment in your life. And I want you to remember that what God wants of you is to trust him above all else and to keep trusting him above all else. This is what Paul was doing. This is what we see in these chapters. This is what we should be encouraged to. The picture of that trust, if you need a picture in your mind, is the picture of an infant with his or her parents. Infants look at their parents with complete trust. That's what God wants from us. Well, let's get back to Acts 27. They made their plans. They made their best guess. They waited till the wind came from the south. They took off and it didn't work out. That leads us to the second movement in Acts 27. The Lord determines our steps. Verses 14 through 20. For a very brief time, the south wind blew. But dangerous winds from the northeast began to blow. And if we can look at the map again, as they leave Fair Havens and start to come westward, where Phoenix is, where they're trying to get to, the winds are blowing from the northeast. They were protected from those winds in the harbor where they were. They couldn't discern that. But a northeaster was coming, and it was blowing them away. There was an island, Kauda, that they might have been able to stop at, but the waves and winds were so fierce, all they could do was take the sails down and begin lightening the boat so it didn't sink. They were, as people like to say, at the mercy of the sea. Paul would say they were at the mercy of the Lord. It was so bad that the lifeboat, which trailed behind the boat, they had to pull that up into the boat and lash it down, throw cargo over, and then eventually take the extra sail that the boat had in the hull and masks and tackle and other things, and they had to throw that overboard too. The storm would rage for 10 more days, and they didn't know where they were 
by that point. By the time they got past Cauda, they didn't know where the wind was sending them. They didn't know what was happening. There was no sun and there was no moon. They were caught up in a terrible storm. It was almost two weeks and they felt hopeless. As Robert Burns would say in his poem, a poem that inspired the title of John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, he wrote, The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. We are not God. We do not have the power to make creation bend to our will or to our plans. Only God can do such things. Yet, we are not without hope. We are not without the Lord. He is, as the Apostle Paul so aptly said in Ephesians, able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And this takes us to the third point in this chapter, that God is faithful. Read with me, if you will, verses 22 through 26. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. It looks like all is lost. And they are stretched way beyond any faith that they might have. It's hopeless. And that's when an angel of God showed up. Now the question that you might wonder is, did Paul need reassurance? The answer is yes. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But if Paul didn't need reassurance, why did God send an angel to Paul? Paul believed. Paul was a man of great faith and he was ready to die. And he was trusting God to fulfill this purpose for his life. And these prayers that had been prayed over him, that he would proclaim the gospel to Caesar. But even Paul had to wonder about this. And this is the thing that God does to all of us. God will constantly stretch your faith. He will constantly push you beyond your comfort zone. You know, you learn to trust God for certain circumstances and God shows up. That's great. I'm comfortable with it. But God doesn't stop growing you. He will take you further down that road to learn how to trust in Him. Until you breathe your last breath in this life, he will stretch you so that you can trust 
in Him. He doesn't want us to do this in our works. And what He asks of us is beyond our knowledge at times. It is rational and it makes sense. Our faith is not irrational. But it is nevertheless a choice to trust. Because it is beyond us. And this, too, was moving beyond Paul. So God now showed up and gave Paul his presence through an angel. And he showed Paul his faithfulness. God reassured Paul that he would sovereignly superintend over what was happening so that he would be delivered to proclaim the gospel to Caesar and that all on board would be saved as well. And we can imagine that Paul was not merely praying for himself, but he was praying for them as well. Paul says to the men on that ship and women and all who were there, take heart. Translation, don't give up. Have courage. And Paul says, I have faith in God. My experience is that God always shows up. He never abandons His people. And you might say, oh, you're a pastor. You're supposed to have faith like that. You know why I believe God never abandons His people? Why He always shows up? It's because there have been plenty of times in my life I have wavered and taken inventory of what happened. And every time I look back, God has showed up. I might have realized it in a moment. I might not have realized it in a moment. But at some point, I have realized that God did not abandon me. He did not leave me alone. The Old Testament, what did God tell His people? Put up these stones of remembrance so when you're traveling through the area, you'll remember what God did. And as long as we remember what God did, then we can proclaim it and then we can have faith because our faith is renewed. So if you're somebody who's struggling right now, can I trust God? Do an inventory. Sit down and figure out when did God ever not show up. I remember talking to a guy who was leaving his career, and this was just after I came here, and he was advised by his counselor to come and talk to me, which I thought was interesting. And so, ultimately, as we got down to the end of it all, I said to him, you know, I realized that the only failure would be if I didn't trust God. That would be the failure. Stepping out not stepping out, not trusting God. So I said to him, when I took inventory, God's never disappointed me. He's never let me down. He's not always giving me what I wanted. In fact, a lot of times he doesn't give me what I want. And sometimes he gives me more than I want. Honey, you're one of those mores. 
And I asked the man, has God never showed up? Has He ever failed you once? And this is what he said to me. Not yet. Wow. I just sat in silence and went, wow. That speaks volumes. You need to examine that. God always shows up. He never abandons His people. He is faithful. God will stretch you. He will take you past your knowing, far beyond your comfort zone, to the place where you have to make that choice to trust Him once again. If you're in that place today, take heart. Take heart. God has not abandoned you. I want you to know that. Even if you think you deserve to be abandoned, God has not abandoned you if you're one of His people. Even if you fear that He has, God has not abandoned you. That is not who God is. God is faithful. God will determine your steps even if you can't see it for right now. Well, I want to move on to the rest of the story and wind this chapter up. The rest of the story is not unimportant to us. The ocean is getting shallower. They throw the lifeboat back into the water just in case to make sure that they're going to be safe. Paul suspects that the sailors will try to jump ship. So Paul warns the centurion that if everybody doesn't stay on the ship, everybody isn't going to be saved. And the soldiers are preparing to um, figure out their next steps. When they see land, they, they um, prepare to head into it. And as they're hoping to beach the ship, they, they land on the rocks and the the ship begins to tear apart. And the soldiers were going to kill the prisoners at that point, but the centurion stops him and Dr. Luke says it was because he wanted to save Paul. The centurion has shown himself to appreciate Paul, not just at the beginning, but at the end of the trip. And so those who could swim, swim to shore. And those who can't get on things that are floating, and they swim to shore. And do you know what happens, amazingly? When this ship started its journey from Schneidus, there were 276 people on board headed for Italy. This is how it ends. And so it was that all 276 people were brought safely to land. The main point for us is that God's faithfulness is the basis for our trust in God and our faithfulness to God. We can trust the sovereignty of God, not just because we're told we ought to trust God, not just because He is sovereign over all things. All of that is true. But we can trust in the sovereignty of God because God is faithful and He always shows up. And if we take an inventory in our life, we will see that to be true. We may not get what we wanted, 
but God has never abandoned his people. One last thing about this. As the sovereignty of God intercedes for Paul and for the people on that ship, one thing we should note is that God chose not to act alone. He could have. He could have just done it. But God, God wanted them to partner with him in this. God's promise had one requirement to it. One requirement for Paul and one requirement for the people. The requirement for Paul was trust. And the requirement for the people was to stay together. Scripture doesn't tell us why. But I suspect that perhaps it was so that this would be a testimony to God's faithfulness. That no one could say, oh, 270 people had good luck. And six didn't. 276 people saved from certain death. Impossible. Not for God. As my wife likes to say, there's no such thing as luck. God's faithfulness, I believe, explains Paul's want to. And God's faithfulness can help us if we're in that place of have-tos with God. It can help us to come back to a place of a want-to with God. If you wish for the sovereign will of God to be fulfilled in your life, remember that God is faithful. Respond to his faithfulness with trust. He will direct your steps. The last thing I want to say, if you're not a person of faith, then may I encourage you to believe in the God who created you. He loves you deeply. So much so that he took on human form and then died on a cross to be a sacrifice to take your sins upon himself. The wrath of God upon himself so that you may be forgiven. I would just encourage you to consider this. And if you want to know more about it, talk to somebody here. Talk to Pastor Tim. Talk to myself. We'd be delighted to help you think through more of that. Here's the last thing I want to say as I prepare to pray. If you have need today of prayer, if you're struggling with God being a have to, if you're at a place where you're looking for clarity for a decision from God, then there's going to be a few of us up here. You can come and pray with us during the closing song. We would love to pray for you and pray with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are the great God that you are. And we ask you, Lord, to hear our prayers and to help those of us, Lord, who are looking for clarity. And for those of us who need encouragement, encourage us. Help us, Lord, to be able to step out in trust and faith in all things with you. 
knowing that while we may make our plans, you are directing our steps. And Father, I pray that you will not leave our hearts in that place of have to when it comes to you, but you will inspire in each and every one of us that want to for you. In Jesus' name I offer this prayer. Amen. I don't know if anybody sent me answer, uh, questions or not. Uh, if you did, look for the highlights this week. They'll probably be in there. I want to remind you that there'll be people out in the foyer to help you fill out the survey that we're trying to get information on that's anonymous. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace, both now and unto life eternal. Amen.